Let's pray, and then we're going to jump into Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. True story. But let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for those who've come here uh, extra early this morning because they want to learn, they want to understand the scriptures. Pray that you would uh, help me to explain clearly um, the truth of your word. I pray that we would be better equipped to read and believe and apply the scripture because of having uh, worked through this material together. I pray that you would bless our worship this morning, unite us together in the truth. Amen. So today I'm attempting to do something I've never done, which is cover three books of the Bible in one lesson. And if you were um, around a couple years ago, we did our first sermon series through Mark, and I made the fateful decision of telling people, we're going to work through the book of Mark rather quickly, and then it took us like two years. So to cover three books in one, uh, the expository preacher in me doesn't know how to feel about this, but I think it does make sense to group some of these minor prophets together. They are smaller in size, but also the themes are related. In fact, one um, author I was reading noted that these three books all approach, you could say, the problem of evil from three different directions. The problem of evil uh, in terms of Israel's enemies, the problem of evil in terms of what Israel themselves was doing, and the problem of evil in the world. And so they are somewhat related. And so though each one of these books does merit extended study on its own, and they do each have a unique contribution that they make to the scriptures, for the purpose of this class, we're going to look at several of them today. And the first is Nahum. Nahum. So that's after Micah, after Jonah. If you're around Micah or Jonah, keep going and you'll find Nahum. As with most of the minor prophets, the book of Nahum takes its name from the author. Verse 1 says, An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Elkosh being the city he was from. And the, 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 his name, the word Nahum, means comfort. It means comfort. But as you see in verse 1, this message is an oracle, an announcement, this, this burdened message that he is charged to unload. And it's an oracle about judgment against Nineveh. You say, how is that comforting? How is it comforting to hear about destruction and judgment and annihilation? Well, this bad news for Nineveh will bring relief and comfort for Israel. If you remember uh, last week in our overview of Jonah, Michael pointed out that Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And at the peak of their power, Assyria ruled all the way from, from parts of modern-day Turkey in the north down around through the Middle East to the south into Egypt. So a big chunk of land that the Assyrian Empire ruled over. And they were notorious, as Michael pointed out, for their cruelty and their violence. They were guilty of horrible atrocities in their wars of conquest. And you remember last week that we learned about a man named Jonah, a prophet who preached to Nineveh, these people that had this terrible reputation. And he preached to them probably around 780 B.C. And as we heard last week, as we all know, that generation did repent of their sin. They received the message about God's warning of judgment, and their hearts were softened, their hearts were broken, and so they were spared for a time. And here's what this means, is that these people at Nineveh, they knew who God was, and they had received truth. And therefore, they are held to a higher level of accountability to God. So Nahum writes after that time, after that time. Uh, Nahum, if we're going to figure out exactly when he was writing, we can notice that he refers to the destruction of a city called Thebes in Egypt 
And we know historically that happened around 661 B.C. So we know that the writing of Nahum has to be after that because he's referring to a historical event in this book as if it's already happened. So in 661, Thebes was destroyed. So it needs to be after that, the writing of this book. But we also know that Nineveh was destroyed in around 612 B.C. when the Medes and the Persians teamed up to overthrow them. So the writing of this book needs to be before that. So that really does give us a good idea of when it was written, right in between those two events, probably around 650 BC or so. And if we date it there, what that means is that 130 years after Jonah ministered in Nineveh, Nahum comes along to write this prophecy. So that gives you a little sense of time, that they received Jonah's message, they repented for a while, but as we know all too um, well, don't we, it only takes a generation or two for the truth to be gone and for corruption to take its place. So that is a little bit about the timing of this book. These people had received Jonah's message, but it was not a lasting repentance. The next generation continued the legacy of cruelty and violence um, and wickedness that displeased God. So Nahum brings a prophecy of doom to the wicked Ninevites, similarly to Jonah. God is going to destroy the Ninevites. He's going to destroy the power of the Assyrian Empire. Now, Stephen Parkin pointed out several weeks back that a helpful way to study the minor prophets is to look for four key themes. Themes of accusation, where God, through his prophet, comes um, as the prosecuting attorney to accuse the people of what they've done. Judgment, where God, as the righteous judge, tells them, here are the consequences for your sin. But then a call for repentance. There's an invitation there um, to respond to the Lord and a promise of mercy. Those are four themes that we find throughout many of these, historic, of these, um, uh, these minor prophets. And it can be helpful because they don't always work sequentially through those four themes. They kind of loop around and cover them in, in various passes throughout each chapter. So let's just look at how these themes develop in Nahum. We can consider the accusation that is brought by the prophet. These people are accused of plotting evil against the Lord. And this is evidenced in their violence against God's people. Look in chapter 1, verse 9. He says, What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. He says in verse 11, From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. We know that the Assyrians, of which Nineveh sort of represents the whole, had crushed already Israel, the northern kingdom, in 721 B.C., So Judah knows that their northern neighbors, their cousins, have already been wiped out by these people. And God here is holding them accountable for doing that. Um, And they've caused a lot of trouble for Judah as well. We see more accusation in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. It says, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, And you might say, what's so bad about the rumble of the wheel? Well, you hear the chariots coming. That's ominous. But they would throw babies in the streets and run them over with their chariots when they conquered cities. So these are wicked people. Galloping horse, bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain. We see heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful, And of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. So you see here a warning of judgment because of their immorality, their idolatry. Unceasing evil perpetuated upon all people. We see in chapter 3, verse 19, 
It says, there is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you, the news of this coming judgment, clap their hands over you. Why? For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? These people are from top to bottom, to their core, wicked. And it's proven by their deeds. Therefore, judgment is deserved. And we see already hints of judgment throughout this book. In chapter 1, verse 9, we notice that this judgment is total. He makes a complete end of them. This is not just a a humbling and a laying low. This is eradication, a demolition, not just a demotion. Chapter 1, verse 9, what do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. Not like the time when Jonah came and preached and they repented and there was a temporary reprieve. No, There will be no second chances, and there's not going to be a future generation that rises up and perpetuates this kind of evil. They're done. They are done. He says in chapter 1, verse 14, they will be cut off and laid in the grave. Chapter 2, verse 10, he prophesies of desolation and ruin, and perhaps the most ominous, and what underlies all of this is in chapter 2, verse 13. Here's what God says to Nineveh, behold, I am against you declares the Lord of hosts. I am against you. Those are serious words. He says the same thing in chapter 3, verse 5. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And what this means for them is woe. Woe to the bloody city. Woe. This is a message of doom and a call for mourning that they are going to experience horrible things. And we could go through and look at all the various uh, description of the judgment that's going to come. There's description of shame and, and humiliation and death. And in chapter 3, verse 8 through 13, we see that although this is the most powerful empire in the world at the time, these are the people who had the best military, the best weapons, the best resources, the most leverage. They will be no more able to resist God than those who came before them. In chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile? With water around her, her rampart a sea, and her water a wall. Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the the Libyans were her helpers, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. We see that there were other powerful cities before them. They weren't the first to think that they were invincible, to think that they were bulletproof because of their geographic situation, because of their military power, because of their allies even. God says, you're going to be no different than the people who came before you. So there's judgment here. So we see accusation, we see judgment. So where's the call for repentance? Well, if you take time to read through this book, you won't find it. You won't find a call for repentance. You won't find an invitation to stop your wickedness and lay aside and, and, and to humble yourself before the Lord. There is only the verdict rendered and the sentence given. And we ask, why? Why is there no call for repentance to the Ninevites? This seems to be breaking the pattern we find in the minor prophets. And we have to ask the question, are their sins really that much worse than Judah and Israel? Because they've been judged for their wickedness as well, but there's always a call for repentance and a promise of restoration. Their sins really are not any worse than Israel's or Judah's. But here's the difference. God had made a covenant with the descendants of Abraham, with the children of Israel. And that covenant meant there was a guarantee of their preservation and their restoration, that there had to be a future for the nation Israel, but there's no such covenant with the Assyrians. And God is not obligated to preserve them forever. 
So after a time, I mean, this is hundreds of years. God's been patient with them. But after a time, eventually, God gets to the point where he says, you're done, and I'm going to remove you from the earth. It's simply game over. There is no call for repentance. So that prompts the question, so where's the mercy then? I thought there's supposed to be a call for repentance and then a promise of mercy. Where is mercy for, Ass- for Assyria? Well, there is no mercy for Assyria in the book of Nahum. They've had their chance. They've had mercy from God, but there is no more mercy that's going to be extended to them. But there is mercy in this book. And the mercy is not for Assyria. The mercy is actually for Israel, for Judah rather, the the people of God, his children. Because the destruction of the Assyrians, the judgment upon Nineveh, is going to bring comfort to those who have been oppressed by them. Namely, Israel, Judah, God's people. So the word Nahum, which means comfort, even though he brings a message of judgment, this would have been so comforting to hear for the people who had been so oppressed by these pagan people. We see this reversal of fortune, this liberation in chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, God had used the Assyrians to judge his people. I will afflict you no more. <clears throat> and now, <clears throat> excuse me. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. So now he's talking to the Assyrians again. They're going to be cut off. They're going to be cut off. But then we see in verse 15, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. What's the good news? The good news is that their enemies are going to be destroyed. And this means peace for Israel. So he says, Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. What's bad news for Nineveh is good news for Israel. Good news for Israel. There's a promise of restoration for them. In chapter 2, verse 2, he says, The Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. So God's bringing comfort to his people through judgment. In chapter 3, verse 19, we see that this is a cause for celebration. Halfway through that verse, he says, All who hear the news about you shall clap their hands over you. The people of God who have been oppressed and afflicted by these wicked nations will be able to rejoice and celebrate when God renders his perfect and righteous judgment. So the question, a good question we can ask about every passage of scripture that we study is this. What does this teach us about God? This teaches us a lot about God. That's really the main point. And all throughout uh, this book, you see a lot about who God is. This is really a demonstration of his character and his nature. In chapter 1, verse 2, right off the bat, it shows us that this is the lesson we're supposed to learn throughout this book. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. We see much about God, that he's jealous and an avenging God, jealous for his glory, avenging his people. We see that he's slow to anger, but he is just. And this is a concept that we find also in Romans chapter 2 and Exodus chapter 34, one of the most important things God tells us about himself when he tells Moses who he is. The Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but who will by no means clear the guilty. God is patient, but we should not ever mistake his patience 
for a suspension of justice or a compromise of his justice. There is coming a day, always, of judgment. And God is more powerful than any empire. It doesn't matter who it is, like we see in in 3 through 6. We see that he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. Uh, The mountains quake before him. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? No one. No one. No one opposes God or overcomes him. He is powerful. And God is a refuge for his people. Chapter 1, verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. We learn a lot about God from this, that if you oppose him, you receive judgment. But if you run to him for refuge, you experience his goodness and his mercy. So that is an overview of the book of Nahum. I have more I wanted to say, but for time's sake, we need to move on. Um, But it's good for us to study the scriptures and see who our God is because the same God we see in Nahum is present in Jesus in the New Testament, isn't he? Compassionate, slow to anger, but also a righteous judge. And so the question becomes, will we be among those who find refuge in Christ, who run to him in faith, or will we be among those who plot against him and experience his judgment? This is an eternally relevant question, isn't it? For all people in all times to consider, where do I stand before God? And this is a good reason for us to read and study Nahum. Because Jesus is going to return. There is coming a day of judgment. And if we have refuge in him, that's good news for us. Good news that the Lord is coming in judgment. But if you're not finding refuge in Christ, that's only a message of doom that Christ is returning. So Nahum fits right in with this theme we see developing through scripture. So that brings us to the next book. Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a prophet about whom we know very little. And this book records for us a vision. And God tells him to write the vision down. We see that in chapter 2, verse 2, or verse 1, rather. Or yeah, verse 2, write the vision, he says. So this is is not necessarily a message that Habakkuk is preaching to, to any specific group of people. This is sort of Habakkuk's journal entry recording his personal conversation with God as he wrestled through some important questions. So the audience is not so much defined, uh, but God instructed Habakkuk to write these things down so that his people, from generation upon generation, so we could all learn from it, and we do learn much from the book of Habakkuk. The theme of Habakkuk is this tension that Habakkuk is wrestling with, this tension between God's patience with the sin of his people and God's use of sinful nations to accomplish his plans, And how that reconciles with God's holiness. If God is holy and God is just, why does he tolerate sinful people, sinful nations? And why does he even seem to be blessing some of them and using some of them to accomplish his plans? And Habakkuk is is in turmoil over this. So uh, Habakkuk has a much clearer structure than Nahum does. Sort of, we, we can trace the dialogue through. It's a back and forth between the prophet and the Lord. And in chapter 1, verse 1 through 11, we find the first dialogue. We find Habakkuk's complaint. He says in verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Here's the essence of Habakkuk's dialogue. Lord, your people are sinning, 
They're violating your law. They're perverting justice. And I'm seeing all this iniquity all around me, and we're begging you to do something, but you don't seem to be doing anything. What about your law? What about your holiness? What about your glory? What about your promise? You told us through Moses that if we keep the law, we'll experience blessing, but if we violate the law, we'll experience these curses. But that's not what I see happening. What is going on? Habakkuk is confused, and he's asking God, God, are you indifferent to the sin of your people because it's grievous, it's grievous. And then God responds, and his answer, to boil it down, is I am not indifferent. I am raising up a tool of judgment to be my instrument. The Chaldeans, Babylon, we see this in verse five. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. God is raising up a new empire, the Babylonians. They'll be the next ones to come on the scene and ascend to power, and God is going to use them to judge the people of Israel. Now, this doesn't exactly answer Habakkuk's question. Before, when he didn't know what was going on, he was troubled. Now that God tells him what's going to happen, He's more troubled. He's not comforted yet. He's more troubled. So we find the second uh, complaint of Habakkuk in verse 12. So Habakkuk recognizes God is God and he's not. And he says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. He knows God's not going to eradicate them, that he's going to preserve his people. He says, O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. He says, okay, God, I see what you're doing. But here is then his tension in verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? He says, God, how are you going to use someone who's worse than we are to judge us? That doesn't seem to make it better. That seems to make it worse. The Chaldeans were proud. They were idolatrous, they were pagan, they were immoral. How could God exalt them in order to judge the people of Israel? And his concern is that their pride and violence would only increase. He talks about a fisherman who who is harvesting the seas and praising his net who never stops. He just tends to think that he's pretty awesome at fishing. He says, God, aren't these Babylonians just going to be inflated with pride? What, What about your glory? And then God responds to him. After asking this question, first we should note in verse 1 of chapter 2, Habakkuk makes this complaint, and then he says, I'm ready to listen, God. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. He says, God, I've, I've emptied my heart before you. Here's all my questions, all my frustrations, all my fears, and I'm ready to listen. And God answers. The Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it and God gives an answer and his answer boils down to this in short trust me Habakkuk and trust my timing because in the end I will make all things right we see that God says he will judge the Babylonians in his time they will experience their day of judgment as well in verse 3 he says for still the vision awaits its appointed time it hastens to its end it will not lie if it seems slow wait for it. Boy, that could be our life first, couldn't it? If it seems slow, wait for it. That's maybe one we should 
meditate on. It will surely come. It will not delay. He says, don't think that just because nothing's happening now that it's not going to happen. Start to start to see a theme here in the prophets, don't we? Behold, his soul is puffed up, speaking of the Babylonians. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. In the end, the one who is proud will be brought low, and the righteous shall live by his faith. Their pride will lead to destruction, but the righteous will live by faith. Does that verse sound familiar to you? It should. If you've read the scriptures, you know that this verse, that the righteous will live by his faith, we find it in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. We find it in Galatians chapter 3. We find it in Hebrews chapter 10. The New Testament authors pick up on this and they show us from varying angles how this applies to the Christian life. It's true for justification. We are made righteous by faith. We see that it's true even in the process of sanctification, that as we persist in faith, God makes us more and more righteous. The New Testament authors unpack the theology of this pregnant little phrase over and over again. And this is the comfort for Habakkuk. The, pr- the proud will be brought low, but the righteous will live by faith. Key word faith there, Habakkuk. So even when you don't understand, even when it seems like nothing's happening, even when this all seems backwards, you need to have faith. You need to trust me and trust my timing, even if it seems slow. Then he gives Habakkuk five woes upon the Babylonians. We won't read these. They're in verses 6 through 20, chapter 2. Woe, woe, woe. Doom, doom. This is judgment coming for the Babylonians. They will have their day in their time. And so it will not be their glory that endures, but God's. I love chapter 2, verse 14. He says, for the earth, well, we can back up and read verse 13. He says, behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing. He says, everything they're doing that, that seems to be this, this massively powerful thing, that's just kindling for the fire. But, in verse 14, he says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. He says, Habakkuk, this is how the story ends. This is how the story ends. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Their idols are worthless Their power is small. I am God, he says. I am God. Verse 18 of chapter 2. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in its own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake. To a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is what Habakkuk needs to know. The righteous will live by his faith, and the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. He's saying, Habakkuk, trust me. Trust me. I've got this. So Habakkuk gets to his final response in chapter 3. And it's praise and peace, and it's really in the form of a psalm. You see in verse 1, it says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth, which is probably some sort of tune or musical arrangement that this could be sung to. So this is a psalm. It's a psalm. You see at the end of it, at the end of chapter 3, it says, To the choir master with stringed instruments. So it's kind of like when Carrie says, Hey, guys, we're in the key of D, and it's in 4-4 you know, timing. You know, that's how we're singing this one. 
So this is a a song. That's how Habakkuk responds. And oftentimes when we're confused and when we're seeking to trust God and we're wrestling with these tensions and and we know God's promises, isn't worship the right response? To worship the Lord, to affirm our trust in him, to rehearse his goodness and his promises, that's how we respond. When we don't understand how or why or when and we're thinking, God, where are you? He says, have faith. I'm in my temple. Let all the earth keep silence. Our response is to be one of worship. And that's what Habakkuk does. He starts off with a plea for mercy. Verse two, oh Lord, I have heard the report of you. Sounds like Job, doesn't it? I've heard of you and now I know more. It sounds a lot like Job. Oh Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, oh Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. He says, God, I recognize you must be just but remember your mercy to us. Do what you promised. That's his prayer. That's his prayer. And then what he does is actually rehearse the faithfulness of God and the power of God in the past. If you read through chapter three, what he says has echoes of the exodus from Egypt and and traveling through the, the Red Sea and through the wilderness and even into the conquest in Canaan. Habakkuk takes himself back through history and says, God kept his promises here. He showed his power here. He showed his faithfulness here. He knew what was best here. And he's preaching to himself as he's worshiping Rehearsing the faithfulness of God. When we're uncertain about the future, we need to look to the past. Habakkuk sets a good example of that for us. Remembering what God's faithfulness has done in the past. And we see that not only is he remembering the past, Habakkuk is trembling. We see this in verse 16. He says, I hear you know, this message about the Babylonians being raised up. And my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Habakkuk's very honest. He's not pretending that I know God is good and I know God is sovereign and I know he'll work it all out in the end, so I am free as a bird and skipping like a lark. Now He knows that bad things are going to happen, but he knows that God is good and can use those bad things to bring about his purposes. He's honest about his own feelings about this. Yet, he doesn't stay there. He doesn't stay trapped in fear. He says, yet, yet, even though I'm trembling, even though my lips quiver, even though rottenness enters my bones, even though my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. He says, I'm going to wait in faith for the day when God brings justice. And I'm going to put my hope in God's promise. He resolves to wait patiently for the Lord. And then he gives us this beautiful final statement of his confidence in God and shows that he is even able to rejoice, even given all the bad news that God has just told him about what's going to happen to his people. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. That's a statement of utter economic devastation and destruction, which means famine and suffering and death. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. 
That's where he lands. That's where he gets to, working through these tensions and these questions, latching onto God's word, believing in his promise, rehearsing the past, and he resolves to walk by faith and to trust and to rejoice and to worship. You know, we often have the same questions as Habakkuk, don't we? God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Why aren't you doing what we expected? When will you finally do what you promised? Habakkuk's personal wrestling with these big questions has been preserved so that we can all benefit from it. It pairs so well with the book of Job in that sense. The message of Habakkuk is that God can be trusted even when we don't understand, that he is merciful, merciful, faithful, wise, just, and sovereign, and that our perspective is often limited, but God's responsibility is to be the sovereign rule of the universe. Our responsibility is to trust him. The righteous shall live by faith. God can use even bad things to accomplish his good purposes. The preeminent example being the death of his son, Jesus Christ. When Jesus hung on the cross, great tragedy, great injustice, a great evil perpetuated by evil men, God brought about the greatest good in the history of the universe, the provision of salvation for all who would believe. So we can trust God. We can trust him. The righteous will live by faith. And that brings us, in the time that remains, to Zephaniah. Zephaniah, man, this is harder than I thought to, to move on and just and do the next one and not keep talking about that. So the author of Zephaniah is God. And we know that's true for all these books, but I love how it phrases it in Zephaniah 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai. So it's attributed more to God even than to Zephaniah. Zephaniah is the one who received it, but these are God's words. So God wrote the book, but he communicated it to Zephaniah. Now, this prophet we know a little bit more about because he has a royal bloodline. It's interesting here. We find a whole bunch of biographical data. Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. In the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Hezekiah was one of the good guys. He was a good king. And it appears that Zephaniah was a relative of his, a descendant of his. So this prophet has a royal bloodline. He's a great-great-grandson or so, somewhere around in there, and a relative, uh, therefore, of Josiah. Josiah was the one who was in the line of the crown. And Zephaniah appears to be a relative of his because they both had descendant, uh, were descended from Hezekiah. So when was this book written? When was Zephaniah written? And I hope you're seeing that the, the date information matters in all of these books because it helps us understand why they're writing, when they're writing, so that we can better understand the material here. So the date information is more than just like, you know, Bible trivia in case you ever get on some game show. Um, The date information actually helps us interpret. So the date for the writing of this book is during the reign of Josiah in Judah. So likely around 635 B.C., So Zephaniah likely would have been a contemporary of Habakkuk and probably Jeremiah as well. Now at this point, Israel had already been overthrown. The northern kingdom of Israel, you remember Israel and Judah had split during the reign of Solomon's son. They had split. And the northern kingdom had already been sent into exile by Assyria. Nineveh, the Assyrians had come in and wrecked Israel. So Judah still existed in the south, two tribes with the capital in Jerusalem. But now they're feeling the pressure of all these hostile armies around them. And the question arises, will Judah fall to the same fate as Israel because of idolatry and wickedness? Or will she escape that fate and be preserved? That's sort of the question. 
Now, the theme of Zephaniah, a key phrase that you need to look for as you read this book, is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. This phrase and variants of it is used more in this book than anywhere else. I think some 13 times. If you count, you know, the day of his wrath, the day of his anger on that day. If you kind of group all those along with the day of the Lord, that formal kind of formulation is about 13 times in this book. The day of the Lord has two aspects, and I believe we've talked about this before in this class. But the day of the Lord means, number one, judgment. God is coming in judgment upon the wicked. Um, But it also has an aspect of salvation. The day of the Lord means salvation for God's people. So both of those aspects are in play. Um, It will be destruction for the enemies of God, but salvation for the faithful remnant. We know that within Israel and Judah, many had apostatized. They'd worshipped idols, but there were some, there were a few who had remained faithful to God. These are the righteous remnant. And so the day of the Lord meant hope for them, but it was a warning of judgment for the rest. Both God's judgment and God's mercy, which we see in the day of the Lord, they're both worthy of praise. So they're both worth us studying and understanding. We see, um, first of all, a judgment promise for the nation of Judah. Just as Israel had been judged for her sin, Judah in the south was also going to be judged. There's a declaration right up front that God is going to sweep away everything from the face of the earth, including Judah. He says in verse 2, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. And this includes even Judah. He says in verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs. He starts going on to the reason for this judgment, their false worship. But as you read through this, doesn't this remind you of Genesis? Sweeping away man and beast, birds and fish, the rubble and the wicked, everyone from the face of the earth. Does it sound like the flood? It sounds like that to me. And we know, that, therefore, that God isn't making empty threats. He's done this before. And he is willing to bring catastrophic judgment when it's necessary. It kind of has an echo here of the flood in in Genesis chapter 6. The reason for this judgment, as we saw already in verse 4, is Baal worship. So judgment in verse 1 is said to come upon the priests, idolaters, officials, kings, kings' sons, those who practice idolatry and immorality, and those who are spiritually complacent. Look in verse 12. Chapter 1. It says, at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. People who don't take God seriously. They don't take his promises of salvation seriously and they don't take his warnings of judgment seriously. God says they are going to experience this sweeping judgment. And then he introduces this theme of the day of the Lord in verse 14. It says, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind, 
stumbling, staggering, groping, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Now when we read this, there seems to be something more going on here than just another invading army, doesn't there? This seems to be capital D, capital L, day of the Lord. With big time, universal, cataclysmic wrath and judgment. And that's good for us to understand that the day of the Lord, there was sort of a near sense in which, you know, any time of, of grievous national suffering and judgment could be considered the day of the Lord. But there is a future and final day of the Lord that is still future for us, in which all of this will be fully and finally brought to bear. So people in this generation would experience a measure of this wrath and judgment. But there is a comprehensive sense and scope to what's being said here that is still to come. And refers to what is going to happen here one day in the future. This day is said for these people to be imminent and near. The sound of it is bitter. It brings wrath and distress and will bring a full and sudden end. So this is speaking in part of a near fulfillment. The invasion of Babylon is going to happen. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come in and Judah, the southern kingdom, is going to be destroyed, judged, and taken into captivity. But there are ominous indications here as well of a future greater climactic day of judgment. So this judgment is certain for Judah. But what we see here is that even though the nation is doomed to experience this judgment, individuals may be preserved through seeking the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility, perhaps you may be hidden. On the day of the anger of the Lord. There will be a remnant that is preserved through this judgment. And that's a very important theme. And in fact, in the New Testament, this becomes an important theme as well. Because in the book of Romans, Paul answers the question, if these are the chosen people of God, why are they not all believing in Jesus? And why are some of them going to be condemned to hell forever? And Paul has to point out, Not everyone who's part of Israel really receives the promises that were given to Israel. There is a remnant, a group within the group, a smaller group that is humble, that has faith, that Paul will tell us has been sovereignly chosen by God and preserved. And they will be the ones who go through the day of the Lord into salvation and do not experience that judgment. So this is a very important theological theme that we see here. Judgment is coming on Judah, but there is a remnant. And here's that call for repentance. Here's that extension of mercy, even in the midst of judgment, that those who seek the Lord and are humble will be preserved as part of this remnant. We see this in chapter 2, verse 7 as well, that the seacoast will become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah on which they shall graze. So there's going to be a remnant there. We see it in chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, if you just turn the page over there. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. There is a remnant that will be preserved and will make it through the day of the Lord. 
A second section in this book speaks about judgment on the surrounding nations. It's in chapter 2 that he pronounces judgment on the Philistines. We see cities like Gaza, Ashkelon, Ekron, and more. We see judgment on the Moabites in verse 8, and the Ammonites in verse 9, on the Egyptians in verse 12, and on the Assyrians in verses 13 through 15. So this day of the Lord means judgment for the nations, for all the nations of the earth. But Judah is not exempt from this. She is lumped in with these wicked nations as deserving of judgment. In chapter 3, verse 5, it says, The Lord is within her, within Jerusalem. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. There are some in Israel who belong more to the Philistines and the Ammonites and the Egyptians and the Assyrians in terms of their character than they do belong to the people of God. And so they are just as deserving as the surrounding nations. So there is judgment, therefore, coming upon Judah. Um, They should have known better. It's funny, if you look in verse 6, he says, I've cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I've laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I've appointed against you. He says this about Judah, but all the more they were eager to make their deeds corrupt. God says, listen, I've shown you judgment on all these nations around you already, and I thought you would have seen that and sort of read the writing on the wall and that you would have known better than to pursue those kinds of sins. But yet you continue to go after those things. So there is judgment upon Judah coming. But in God's mercy, that's not the end of the story. Not only is there a remnant among Israel, among Judah, but there is coming one day blessing on all the nations. And so we've talked about this theme of mercy that's in all of these minor prophets. And here we see it unpacked, maybe in greater detail than in many of the other books. There's going to be a day of blessing on all the nations. He says, therefore, wait for me, declare the Lord. This is in verse 8 of chapter 3. For the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation. This is judgment. All my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. So you see the idea here of like a furnace, and everything that is corrupt and evil is going to be incinerated. But there is something that comes through the fire. Verse 9, for at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. The day of the Lord is not only a day of judgment, it's also a day of salvation. And we see here hints of what this salvation looks like. There's going to be pure speech in verse 9. And this refers perhaps to the fact that it's been pure, that it's no longer corrupt. But part of me wonders if this is actually pointing back at the Tower of Babel. Remember when all the languages were scattered? If all the people will be able to come together and have a common language of worship. I wonder. I'm not for sure on that. But it makes me wonder. It says that all will call on the name of the Lord in chapter 3, verse 9. This is spiritual restoration. This is revival. It says in verse 10 that worshipers who were once scattered, this remnant throughout the earth, will be regathered in together. In verse 11, there will be a removal of corruption from their midst. Verses 12 through 13, we find explicit reason for hope that a holy and righteous remnant remains after the cleansing judgment. We read this earlier. 
And so he calls them, therefore, in verse 14, to sing and rejoice. Sing because God's salvation is coming for all the nations of the earth. That's a reason for worship. And then look in verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That's good news. The Lord, their king, in their midst. This can only be the Messiah. This can only be Jesus Christ ruling here over his kingdom, not pouring out wrath and indignation any longer. All the wicked have been swept away, and now he sings over his people, quiets them with his love as his people worship him. And this means fortunes restored for the people of God. Look in verse 20. At that time, I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. So the reality of the future day of the Lord means that there is a time of final judgment for the unfaithful and final restoration for the faithful. So this is both a warning and an invitation. It shows God's faithfulness to his covenants, to bring judgment when he promised judgment, but also to bring restoration and blessing to those to whom it has been promised. And he even hints, I think, at the new covenant, because there's not just Israel that is there after the day of the Lord. You also see the nations coexisting alongside them under the righteous rule of Jesus Christ. So I think that this really contains the final answer to the problem of evil that Habakkuk wrestles with. The final answer for the problem of evil is that one day Jesus will reign, all evil will be done away with, and the nations will live under the rule of King Jesus. And it's all going to be resolved in that day. So that's the day of the Lord. That's the book of Zephaniah. I hope you'll read it, study it more, and be encouraged by it as you see the faithfulness of God, the justice of God, the mercy of God on display. You are dismissed. Thanks.